Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. All right, we're back for another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast. And I'm on the line with John Barklow once again, back from popular demand. John, what's going on, buddy? <laughs> How's it going, Bo? Oh, can't complain, John. It's uh, it's getting a little colder here in Pennsylvania, and, and rifle season's kind of in swing here, and just uh, still trying to fill my deer tag. What's going on with you? No, I hear you. Um, yeah, season's pretty much over for me now. I, I try to wrap up around uh, Thanksgiving-ish. I have hunted a little bit in December in the past, but just work gets in the way for me in December. It gets pretty, pretty busy, um, like we were talking. But, you know, I, I think, you know, you and I have known each other for well over a year, probably two years is going on now. But uh, did you know I was from Ohio? You, you and I basically come from the same neck of the woods. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I think we actually talked yeah. about it on the, the last podcast where you're from yeah, okay. Eastern Ohio. Yep. Yeah, because you said, you know, you talked about the Orange Army and, and getting out there for rifle season. And, man, it just, a lot of memories come flashing back, that's for sure, <laughs> when you start talking about that. But, um, yeah, but, yeah, it's definitely cold out here in Montana. And we had some snow, and now we don't. And But uh, our big game season finished up, for the most part, um, just about two weeks ago now. So, yeah, it was... Uh, I don't know. I probably hunted more than I've ever hunted this year, but probably. So I just had a lot of hard earned, a lot of hard earned opportunities. Sometimes I'd go on hunts and never even get an opportunity. So, I mean, overall I'm happy, but man, some years, like we were talking, some years just come easier than others, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know it. I know what you're saying. It was, uh, it's been a tough year for me from this standpoint. And then listeners have heard, heard all about that as, as I say, every, Every day, I'm like, hey, next time I'm going out, 100% chance I'm, it's going to be successful, and, and here I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you got to have that attitude. And I, I, I have to tell myself that a lot. That's not, like, I'm not just saying that frequently, like, because, I mean, one second, literally one second can change your entire season from, you know, either a bad, frustrating season to like the most successful you've ever had, you know, and that's, what's so crazy about hunting. You just never know when it's going to happen. Yeah. And I think that was one of the, the hard lessons I've learned over the last few years was, you know, I, I'd be going all these days of hunting and, and, you know, not having opportunities, or anything. And sometimes you can get a little bit lackadaisical, I guess, for lack of better terms. And you, you can really miss an opportunity, which I have, um, in the past from that, you know, you just got to, stay focused with it. Cause like you said, you never know when, when that opportunity is going to, you know, present itself, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that pretty much in a lot of respects, that pretty much summarized my season is, you know, I ended up, I ended up being successful on, on, uh, on two bull elk, but you know, they didn't come easy, nor should they ever. But, you know, if, if, if I wasn't ready and it just kept training and training and trying to stay positive, um, which I said is very difficult, but you know, there's split second decisions literally that, you know, can define a successful, 
uh, hunt and harvest from, from just a missed opportunity. And I had a friend who's a far better hunter than I'll ever be, you know, and he told me that he said, listen, success is going to depend on literally split second decisions. And so you have to have done all the training up front. You have to have already decided, you know, like if you're going to hold out for a certain age class or size of an animal, you know, whatever that is, like you better have that sorted out because when it happens, it's going to happen quick. And, you know, depending on how you react to that, um, is going to depend if you're successful and, you know, it's, it's, it's happened in the past that way, but, but this year, that's pretty much how every opportunity has presented itself. It's just long, long days of, of nothing. And then all of a sudden it happens. And, you know, these two bulls, I never even had time to range them. Uh, John Dudley, actually, we were hunting together in Montana here and, and he filmed it. I think he just put that, that episode out, but you know, this bull steps out and I really didn't have much to range. And I kind of, you know, I knew it was 30 ish yards and I just came to full draw and let the, the animal, you know, kind of step out and, and, and just executed the shot. But, and then the same thing happened in Utah bull comes running up the mountain, literally with his head back, steam blowing out his nose, just literally wanting to kill me. Um, cause we were bugling back at him and he came looking for a fight and I was pinned down on this trail and I just said, I'm going to kill him right here and just waited, waited, waited to kind of draw, you know, till I saw the whites of his eyes and his head went behind this, this, uh, little pine bough. And again, it, it happened so quick. I kind of guessed the, guessed the range at 30 and, you know, it's either, it's either that, if you wait, if you try to range, if you, you know, second guess your shot sequence, like it's just not, it, yeah, the opportunity is going to be gone. So I learned a lot. I learned a lot. I learned a lot of what I'm doing is right. And I learned some things that I need to do better at for sure. Yeah. Well, that sounds like, I mean, and again, you look at it from the outside and you're like, wow, he, he killed two bulls in, you know, one year. That's it. Wow. He had a great season and I'm, I'm sure it was, but it, you don't see the backstory of <laughs> how many days I'm sure you hunted and then the effort that was put into it, you know? Yeah. And I don't want it to come. I mean, I'm, I don't consider myself a great hunter at all. I definitely hunt with people who are great hunters and I've learned from some really great hunters, but you know, I, I, I think I'm a quick study, but that whole, that whole part of, I mean, you got to be in the arena, right? You got to be there. You got to be where they are. You've got to be ready. Your gear's got to be ready. I mean, all those things everybody talks about, but, and then you just have to, you have to have it so ingrained in your head that you, I don't want to say you're not conscious in the moment. I mean, I'm certainly conscious in the moment, but there's no hesitation. There's no, well, I don't know. His thirds are a little short or this and that. It's like, if that's the bull you want to kill, you better kill him. Yeah. And it's just going to happen. It's just going to happen that quick sometimes. Other times you'll sit there and wait for hours, you know, for him to push a cow by you or something, but, but it didn't happen that way this year. And, uh, so that's, that's the opportunities that were given to me. And if I didn't take advantage of them, like those are the only opportunities I got, you know, both of those, both of those kills were on, if I recall correctly. So the one in Montana was literally the last five minutes of the last day. And Utah was like maybe the second to last day, something like that. But, you know, there wasn't going to be a whole lot of time left. And, uh, so those were the opportunities that, that got presented and I was ready to, I was ready to pounce on it. Yeah. 
No, that's a, that's a good point. What you're talking about with the the rangefinder thing, that's a couple of years ago. That's what one of my big mistakes. I actually, I think I messed up on two bulls because of it. And and the thing is, when I, when I'm when I'm whitetail hunting, I I range everything ahead of time, you know, so it's a little bit simpler because you don't need to pull out your rangefinder and hit anything. Well, when I I had a bull come across in front of me, and I bet he was only thirty to thirty three yards or so, and it was a small opening and, and the cow went in front of him and I tried pulling up my rangefinder to, to hit it beforehand. By the time I was putting my rangefinder away, he was through that opening and I'm like, why, you know, looking back on it, I'm like, first of all, I'm shooting a, you know, a double pin sight. I'm shooting one of those spot hogs. That, so my top pin is 25 and my bottom pins 38 and they're locked in. And he was in mm-hmm. between that. And when you, I put my pins up, you could put the top pin on the top of his vitals and the bottom pin on the bottom. And it was still, in the the kill zone with it you know so like i i could have been a couple yards off and still executed a great shot and you just sometimes i well what i'm realizing is i need to stick with my instincts a little bit more um especially when it comes to elk hunting which is you know against so unfamiliar to me um yeah with with, yeah well i guess i have over like 30 days into it now but (laughs) it's still it's still so new to me you're, you're banking those karma points, buddy. Believe me, it'll happen. And when, when it happens, it's going to happen. I'm telling you, it'll happen quick. And then you'd be like, what, what just went down? Yeah. Um, but instincts, I think instincts is, I mean, it's the right word. Like if you, like if you're in the hunt and you're just, you're, you know, you, you, you can't force it. I mean, again, again, guys better than me have taught me this. It's like, listen, this is what the hunt is giving you, you know, the weather, the animals, the terrain, whatever. And you got to go with it. And when you're kind of in that, in that zone, like you are working more on instinct and obviously the more experience you have, the better that instinct becomes. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I've seen it, believe me, I've done it. You know, what I'm not telling you, Bo, or I haven't told you yet is, you know, the black bear I missed, all the axis deer I missed, you know, the stalks I blew on mule deer, like, you know, yeah, I killed two bulls, but I, I definitely had lots and lots of other awesome learning opportunities this year, you know, that nobody ever gets to, to hear about or see on, on, on Insta chat. But, <laughs> um, but I was, I was antelope hunting this year with, with a couple guys and, um, we were just driving from one area to the next and we saw this good buck, you know, and he's, he's kind of off the side of the road. And so we drove past him, but he got out, kind of tried to get in front of him, you know, and ambush this, this animal. And I mean, he's still a relatively new bow hunter. You know, he's definitely got plenty of kills under his belt but and so whatever an hour later we turn around and start to go back down the road and we see him walking our way and hey what happened what happened it was a really nice buck and he said you wouldn't believe it he goes that antelope walked right to me and i'm like and and he goes and i see the horns the tips of his horns coming up over the the rise this little hill he's on one side the animal's on the other i said what'd you do and he goes I panicked and took out my rangefinder, and I said, you're kidding me. And he goes, no. And the antelope came and stood right at him, looking at him at 15 yards and he ranged him. Oh. And I said, Damn it, dude, I said, that's when you just need to draw your bow and just be completely anchored and settled in. And as soon as he shows himself at 15 yards, you, you shoot him. He goes, yeah, I know. But you know, again, that's just, that's a lesson he learned and he'll never forget it. And I've been there. Yeah. But, um, but again, it's, 
it's not, he wasn't working on instinct. He was trying to do the right thing, but you know, it's like, man, you're 15 yards. Like you don't need to range the animal. You just don't. Yeah. You know, John, when I was um, up in Alberta there recently, Jim Hole, who we were up there with, and when yeah. you uh, get to listen to that podcast, you'll hear uh, some of the things he said have stuck with me. And Jim's a really, I guess, when when he talks, he's one of those guys that I just listen to every word because he's you know he's got the experience and he just talks with so much confidence. And he he was talking about responding rather than reacting, and mm-hmm. that that whole he goes inexperienced hunters react to a situation when a, you know, say a big white tail comes close to you, but you know, experienced hunters respond to it. And he was just, just talking about like kind of that mentality and you know, how, how that kind of kind of apply to really just about anything. But, and, and the other thing that he was saying the one day right before we went out for an evening sit, he looked at me right in the eyes and he's like, you, there's, you better be thinking about this out in the tree stand. What are you going to do when you have this opportunity? How are you going to make it happen? And, you know, just really keeping that in the, the forefront of your mind, I guess, is, you, you, again, you work so hard to get that opportunity, but what are you going to do when it actually presents itself? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, if, you, if you're out there to hunt and harvest, you know, and, and some people aren't, but you know, if you're out there to kill, then that's what you need to be thinking about. Cause there's a big difference between wanting to hunt that animal and, and, and kill the target animal or just going out and observing wildlife. And it's just a slightly different mentality, right? Just in your mindset, like, like that's the animal, like I'm going to go kill him as opposed to that's the animal. I'm going to try to go get close and try to make something happen. It's like, no, I'm going to go kill that animal. Like that's the animal we're going to do this. And, um, but in your mind or in my mind anyways, like I've played those scenarios. If I miss a shot, I'll come back to my house and try to replicate that as much as I can. Or, you know, like in your case, like shooting through a hole at say 35 yards, I will try to replicate that and understand where my arrow hits and how I can shoot through a, say a basketball size hole at 35 yards. Like, cause, cause that'll just, that'll just add to my experience for the next time. If that ever happens, you know, that, okay, it's not going to happen again. It's going to go down differently the next time for sure. Yeah. Um, and that's great. I mean, Jim, I think put it, yeah, that that's, he, I think he put it exceptionally well. Yeah. You're responding. You're not reacting. I mean, reacting almost to me implies like a bit of, um, like nervousness, like, like, like chaos or nervousness and responding is, Nope. I'm, I'm, I'm experienced. I'm ready. I've thought this through and I, I know how to do this. Yeah. uh, You you know, you sit there, we've talked, you sit there in a tree stand for a week and you get maybe one opportunity and it it can surprise you sometimes when it happens. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's exactly true. And, and I, I had, you know, a couple, um, I guess there were opportunities this year from the tree stand that, caught me off guard and it ended up being, you know, deer that I, I didn't shoot, um, just because my, I guess my goals for this year and I, I, you know, I let them pass, but I'm like, geez, I don't know if I could have made that happen. Cause a lot of them, and it, and it goes anywhere from, you know, from elk hunting to whitetail hunting, but a lot of my setups say it's in a, a creek bottom and you have a noisy stream going by and you might have a row of hemlock trees next there and they're right there. I mean, you have to be ready. And, and again, that was something else. I learned from Jim was just 
just really, you know, being at attention all the time and just not, you know, I guess getting lazy with it just because you've hunted again for seven, eight, you know, nine days, however long it is. And same thing with, you know, with elk hunting is always just, I guess, being ready for, for the opportunity and making sure you can capitalize on it. And- yeah, we had, we had, we had quite a few bulls in Montana this year that they came in quiet. You know, it just wasn't, it just wasn't happening. The rut just wasn't happening full swing where we were. And, you know, these, we'd have bulls, you know, you'd see a bull 800 yards away and you'd call. And then 30 minutes later, that bull would be like, you know, if you weren't ready, that bull would be standing in front of you. Well, John ended up shooting one at 15 yards that he had called from 750 yards away. And, um, yeah, just absolutely crazy. Right. And, um, so it was just this, I don't know, it's just different. And so it's like, okay, that's a scenario. That's what we got to deal with. So, you know, the, the one I ended up shooting that night, um, it was super, super windy. And I was like, man, this is not going to happen. Like, I don't even know if I could shoot. And right at dusk, the wind died down. Well, I had seen a bull go in this bedding area. And, uh, so I said, well, heck, we got nothing else going on. Let's go over there. Well, and then the wind died down. And so John put out a couple calls. And before we know it, this, this bull is standing basically inside the dark timber at 10 yards. <clears throat> and so we were just kind of at a standstill. And then when he started moving to our right, I just, you know, you just, again, I guess I had to respond and just go, yeah, he's going to come out there. If he comes out there, it's going to be 30 yards plus or minus two. And as soon as I saw movement, I was just came to full draw. And, you know, we got, interestingly enough, you know, the whole thing on film, I'm not a big film guy, but, um, you know, and it worked out right, but, but, you know, it's just that that's what was offered. And, and that's just the way it played out. And, uh, it was a hard week elk hunting that year or this year. So tell, tell me about, tell me about your, uh, tell me about your Colorado, uh, yeah. adventures. Yeah. You, you've been in elk. Yeah. Well, yeah, this year, um, so I went back to the, the same area uh, that I was I was telling you about. I think we last time we talked was like about a month or so or two months before the trip. And I ended up going yeah. back to the same area that I had been in the previous two years. I had gotten to know the area, kind of learning where the elk were, you know, holing up a little bit once the muzzleloader season came in and everything else. And so I ended up going out a week early to spend a full 14 days out there just kind of last minute I realized that I could move some things around and make it work and went out September 1st and got some intel from some people and talked to the wildlife biologists and they were like oh you know the elk should be in the high country in this and and they kind of had given me a little bit of information on some of the areas that I was already in and where to look for them and well we got up there and it had been so dry that the elk weren't there was not even any deer up in the high country for the most part it just all the grass was dead and it was all burned up and it just seemed like we were about i don't know four or five days behind like since it burned up and they just moved out so we spent i bet actually it was seven days before i even located one elk like it was just wow we moved that's rough on it we ended up moving to a different part of the unit because we did find them, but they were down on the private. So this area I was hunting, 
uh, the higher you got, you know, it was the public land. And as you got down, you know, below 8,000 feet, it was into the private. And that's where the elk seemed to be at. They were down a little bit lower where the grass was greener and everything else. So it was kind of, you know, disgusted with it and, and came out to, to kind of relocate and find a different spot and ran into a guy in the parking lot of a hotel and he was wearing a camouflage hat. So I figured I'd go talk to him and, and the guy ended up being a listener to the podcast and was like, and he's like, Hey, uh, he's like, I was just in this area. He goes, it's a different part of the unit, super steep. He goes, I can't walk up and down these hills any longer. He goes, but there's elk there. I said, all right. He's like, he, he, he's like, Hey, here's where you go. Blah, blah, blah. He gave me a lot of great Intel. And, and I thank that guy. And, and he was from Kansas. And so we, so me and my dad went out there and, you know, packed in and one, he wasn't lying. It was super steep. It was definitely a little bit more deer country than elk, but there was elk there. We found, found a big herd and, you know, I, I got to a point where I couldn't figure out how to get in on them with the way the cliffs were like, they were literally, it, it seems like the worst spot ever until I'd recently watched a video of Aaron Snyder killing a mule deer. And I'm like, all right, well, he was in way worse cliffs than I was, but, <laughs> and, um, so anyways, I, I kind of got cliffed out there and, and, and the one, once we made a different game plan and got into where they were like bedded at, um, another hunter came up the, the bottom of the basin and it ended up blowing the elk out. So long story short, that first part of that trip was kind of, uh, it was really tough and I was really kind of down on the whole situation. But at that point, my dad was flying back to Pennsylvania and I was meeting up with a few other guys to go out and we took horses back in, back into a location. We were way back in there and it we get back to where they normally would set up camp and there was, we were going to set up a base camp and hunt out of that. And there was like five or six other tents set up. Like, and I'm talking, I'm talking nine miles back or eight miles back, whatever it was. I mean, it wasn't, and they had llamas lined up and I mean, these people were, were doing it too, you know, and, and that, that last, you know, six days of the trip or whatever got into a lot of elk. Um, it just didn't make a, a shot happen. Had a, a bull that was the, the biggest bull I've seen in Colorado. I had him at seventy-two yards, and and I could have shot, but he was he was definitely alert, and I just didn't feel confident in shooting that with him being alert. I'd feel confident in and around that range with him, you know, if he was had his head down feeding and stuff. But it just wasn't a shot that I was willing to take. So I had to let him walk against what I'd, you know, wanted to do <laughs> there and, uh, ended up getting into another satellite bull. He was a, it was a seven by six, but he was, he was a satellite to this, that other one that I'd seen and had him in front of our, my buddies that were hunting. They were like, he was at like 10 or 12 yards, but the sagebrush was so thick there that he couldn't, that, or the oak brush, sorry. And the, and mm-hmm. they just couldn't get a shot at him. And I'm, I'm watching through my binoculars, like, how aren't they shooting, you know? And the, the bull ended up, you know, kicking out and just kind of going back the way he came. Cause he couldn't find the other bull that, that we were calling. And I, I ran down to the, the Creek bottom. I said, this is, you know, my opportunity to, to cut him off and I ran down. He's coming back. 
I ranged this tree about 52 yards, had pressure on the release, start drawing back. They needed about five, six more steps. And those other guys didn't know I had moved down there and they bugled again. And he stops and he turns around and goes back to them again. And <laughs> I was like, yo, no, you know, it was, it was that kind of experience. And then there was another bull that I, I passed on only for the reason that I didn't realize he was legal. I, I, I mean, he was very, very small bull, but I was, I would have been just as happy as shooting that. And he came out actually to, he was just coming out to get water. It was real hot that day and came out with a bunch of cows at about 60 yards in the wide open, everything. And I couldn't figure out if his front brow tine was long enough. And I wasn't, it was my fault for not being a hundred percent sure with the regulations as far as if it needed two brow points that were, you know, four inches or if it was one and, you know, I was kicking myself in the ass for not being a hundred percent clear on that going in. I just never really thought I'd be in that situation, I guess. And so that was kind of the, the gist of it there, but had, had a bunch of encounters there towards the end of it. Just nothing that I was able to, you know, execute a shot on, but let's, let's put it this way. Yeah. I, uh, I was run down pretty bad after that many days of elk hunting. I, I didn't, I can imagine I didn't pack enough food that I needed to. Um, it mm-hmm. was enough for seven days, but going that long, just, you know, even being somewhat deficient and I, it just, I, I just felt drained. I got really sick the last couple of nights. The point, like my throat was basically swollen shut and I just didn't want to do anything, but we still, we still went out hunting and it was pretty miserable. Like you said, the last few days, but it was, uh, it was definitely a grind, I guess. <laughs> You're, you're at some altitude, right? Yeah. So started the, started out the trip as high as I think the one ridge went over around 12,000, but we were hunting them around 11,500 there and ended up where we're getting into the bulls in a completely different unit. We were down at like 7,800, 8,000. So, yeah, so it was, uh, yeah, completely different. It was just funny seeing that much different country um, and, and that amount of time and watching it kind of, the leaves go from summer to fall all in the time I was out there, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, you know, I certainly, I certainly commend you for not taking that, you know, that one shot. I mean, you, you, you never regret it. Right. I mean, you kind of like, well, I should have, um, I, I don't know. I missed an opportunity, but and you never regret it until you take a shot and it, it's just not a good one. And then you're like, then you regret it the rest of your life. So, um, but you know, with that said, and I know, you know, maybe not all your listeners, but you know, some of them are from back East and, and looking to maybe go do their first elk hunt. I mean, elk are big animals. They're big animals. They're big boned, even a mule deer, you know, big bodied, um, you know, and some guys, depending on their setup, they're not shooting you know, heavier equipment, but, um, but with all that said, and I'm, I'm certainly not condoning taking bad shots. I'm not like, I, I think everybody should be very conservative in their shots, but, but also you have to take the, the first best shot that's offered to you and not wait for the perfect shot. If that makes any sense. Um, cause you know, when you're running and gunning out in the mountains and, 
you're trying to play thermals and, you know, just like, just get the elk to think that he's got the upper hand, but you've got the upper hand, but you've got to kill him there and you can't let him go four more steps. Like, you know, you just, you got to take, you got to take the first best ethical shot that's offered. And sometimes it's not completely broadside, you know, it's just, it's just not, but it's got to be, you know, well within your range and you got to have the right equipment, but you know, full disclosure, those, those two bulls I killed this year, they were both, and I knew it, but they were both, uh, quarter and two me now, not, not hard quarter and two, but a little quarter and two. And I knew that I had to put it right behind their shoulder to get it to, to be effective, you know, and at 30 yards, I thought I was more than competent to do that. And then, you know, I don't mind talking about it because, you know, John Dudley got it on film, but, you know, he called that bull and it came in to 15 yards and, you know, obviously that's well within his effective range. And that bull was not going to give a broadside shot. He came in, he came in frontal, um, and he shot him frontal and that bull, the only reason that bull went 50 yards is because it was straight downhill. And I mean, the bull was dead on its feet. I mean, the blood at the shot was just, you know, just insane. Um, but you know, a lot of guys wouldn't have taken that shot. And I'm certainly not telling guys to take that shot if they haven't studied anatomy and have the right setup, you know, and the right broadhead. But, but there's a good chance that that was the only opportunity that that elk was going to present itself to John, right. Yeah. Or present itself to me. And, you know, if you're, you know, again, if you're inexperienced, you gotta, you gotta kind of work through that, but, but sometimes that might be the only opportunity that you get in an entire season. And again, not, not condoning unethical shots. I'm just saying you need to take the first best ethical shot that's offered. And that sometimes that's not completely broadside. Yeah. And, and I mean, and like, like you're saying, as far as understand how the animal's bodies laid out. I think the, the guys from born and raised outdoors did a YouTube video on the frontal shot. As far as like, they had like a, they had a 3d elk set up and they were showing then kind of had it overlaid with how the vitals are laid out and how you'd have to shoot at different angles and just really being, um, I guess, figuring it out how that works. My, my dad's white tail that you were talking to me about, John, he shot that off the ground frontal and arrow came mm-hmm. out, came out the back leg, went all the way through him, you know, out the back leg and he was dead within 30 yards. And, and he's actually made that shot. A lot of times he won't take it out of a tree stand because of the angle, No, um, no, no, but, but off the ground, he's like, I, I feel as just as confident with that shot as I do, you know, any, if it's, you know, presents itself that way. And, and, yeah, and again, I would that's say not at a, at a, at a close distance. I mean, most people say, you know, 20 yards and under. Yeah you know, something like that. And I, I can't, I can't determine that for everybody, but for me, that's my self-imposed limit, you know, for an elk is 20 yards or under. I mean, the, the dirty little secret is that a lot of these really successful elk hunters that, you know, we've heard about for, for many, many years. And a lot of them have hunted by themselves, although not exclusively, but you know, a lot of times, as you know, when you're, when you're hunting by yourself, especially trying to call an elk, you know, what do they do? They'll come in and, and they'll be, they'll be coming at you frontal. Um, but a lot of those, a lot of those elk hunters have been shooting elk and killing them with frontal shots for years, but nobody, nobody wanted to talk about it for fear of, you know, kind of being, you know, 
slandered. Um, and Corey Jacobson has, did an exceptional job with his elk one one. Uh, same thing, showing the anatomy, you know, had a bull, the way they dissected it, you know, showed the anatomy, showed the hole, showed where to shoot, and then showed some some shots on film. And, you know, I, ju- I just, I think people shouldn't take that if they don't feel comfortable, but I would encourage people, you know, to study the anatomy and, and, and get confident enough and shoot a good enough setup you know, that, that they can take that, that they can take that shot. You know, if you get that shot next to your bow, like, you know, you should, you know, I'm sure you'll take it. Yeah. I, I, you know, you know, you've studied it, you know, what you're, what you're looking for. Yeah, no, definitely. And like you said, it's just, and, and the more you practice it and look into it, the more confident, I guess you can be, you know, going into it. And, and I, I learned one thing, I, I guess with myself is I've been really trying to practice longer range shots to again be more you know competent at closer distances and everything but there was a lot of chances this year that were at that further range and did I capitalize on them no but I I felt confident in shooting you know 50 to 60 yards without a problem and where you know, maybe even years prior, I wasn't as confident with it. I had my, you know, range limited at 50, which, you know, say that bull would have stepped out. It would have been out of my range, you know, a few years ago. And, and I just, I don't know, shooting a lot and, and, and practicing kind of them, those different scenarios, I think would really help out. And again, this is, again, me looking from the outside, looking in since I, you know, haven't killed an elk, but, uh, I, I don't know, my confidence level, I guess, went up after, you know, shooting for, you know, basically year round and all summer at long distances, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, you know, if you come out West, I mean, the reality is you have to take slightly longer shots than, you know, when I'm back East whitetail hunting, part of its terrain part of it's the animals, the way you hunt them. Um, you know, and I think it's more accepted now that one, the equipment can do it. And two, you know, people tend to shoot, not everybody, but tend to shoot, you know, year round or, or more often than they have. Um, but I think everybody's got to figure out their own, you know, their own limit. But, you know, I can tell you for, for me and my experience, just hunting mule deer, you know, if, if I couldn't shoot 40 to 50 yards effectively, you know, like in kind of odd body angles and stuff, I don't know if I'd ever killed a mule deer yet. You know, I mean, the, the reality of mule deer hunting is for most of us, like 40 to 50 yards is about right. I know some guys that they say, yeah, I get to 50 yards and I stop because of that sixth sense that a big mule deer buck tends to, tends to have, you know, where he kind of knows something's up and he just, stands up in his bed with his butt facing you and walks straight away. But, um, but you know, a lot of us, not everybody, but, you know, I'll speak for myself. You know, I shoot a slightly heavier setup because the animals are bigger bone because I know I might be taking a slightly longer shot and that arrow needs to buck the wind a little better, you know? So we kind of set our, set our equipment up out here for, for those scenarios. Um, but I just, I don't think you can practice enough. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a year round shooter and have been for 15 years for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I haven't, uh, I haven't got to shoot with you yet, but I hear you're a pretty good shot and I know you're not going to 
sit there and say that, but I, <laughs> I've heard you're a pretty good shot. I'm a pretty good shot. I won't necessarily, you know, okay, I'm a pretty good shot, but the people I shoot with a lot of times make me look like a complete hack. Like I've just been fortunate enough to shoot around some really good people and learn from them and, and quite frankly, be very humbled <laughs> um, and just try to learn everything I possibly can. But, you know, I put a lot of time and effort into it as well. Um, you know, I just, I just, there's not a month I'm not, I'm not either, you know, pounding paper targets or 3d or, or whatever, but I also have the mentality as, as a dedicated bow hunter that, you know, I may only get one shot this next hunting season and man, I've got to do everything in my power to make that one shot count, you know, for, for my sake and especially for the animal. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but that, that's just the way I approach it. When, when I, when I get into that, that red zone, so to speak, you know, it's so, the process is so ingrained in me that, you know, I can, I can think through it and, and just execute and not, I just, I almost don't worry about the outcome because I know I put the work in the outcome is going to be, going to be what I, what I want it to be. Yeah. It, and, uh, John, do you, do you shoot like any of the total archery challenges or any of those events? I do. Yeah. I shoot. Normally I shoot two to three of those total archery challenges a year. Um, I think they're exceptional events. I would recommend anybody go out and, and try one. Um, you know, the best, the best way I describe it is it's kind of like golf, but for bow hunters where <laughs> you go out, you're a, you're a group of four or six and there's a tee box and a target. And, you know, if you want to shoot from, from the tee box or the cone, it is, then you can. And if it's too far, just walk up till a, you know, it's an acceptable distance and shoot. And so, you know, I'll go shoot with my buddies one day, then I'll go and shoot with my wife the next day. And it's just an awesome experience, but I just, there's the chat, the shots are so challenging that it's just absolutely phenomenal practice for, for, uh, for hunting scenarios. And I think they have one out. Don't they have one out in Pennsylvania now? Yeah. Yeah. They have one in uh seven Springs, which is outside of Pittsburgh. Yeah. 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 yeah I've yeah. been, I've been going to that for three or four years, however long they've been having it now. And, uh, this past year, it's 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 funny too because you get the pressure put on you, especially when you're with a group of your friends or buddies or you know anything else. Uh, I remember last year, I think our group was like it was extremely big. It was like eight or ten people, and um, and everyone's just you know ragging on each other and everything else. So it, it puts you in some high pressure scenarios to make some tough shots, and and Sean definitely sets up the courses to to make you try to lose arrows. I think. You know, <laughs> a- a- absolutely. No, absolutely. I mean, I'll, I, you know, I plan on, I plan on losing an arrow a day when I'm there. And, uh, <laughs> that's about, that's about my average and, you know, but it's just, it's just fun to do. And, you know, if I'm not shooting those, I do a lot of, not a lot, but as the season approaches, I do what, what I call stress courses or what people in the military law enforcement used to call stress courses. But just anything to kind of get your heart rate up and then, and then, you know, go shoot, you know, go shoot the elk target or, or the deer target at, you know, 47 yards across a hill or something like that, you know, do push ups and then, and then go do a shot and, and see, 
your effective range or what you think is your effective range all of a sudden starts to become a lot shorter, you know, and you get a lot, a lot more humble. Like you said, you're going up and down those hills, you're at elevation and you know, things change. The other thing that's interesting, we could talk about maybe on another time, but you know, you could, you're coming from not sea level, but a very low elevation. And then you're going to go say hunt elk at 11, 12,000 feet. Like you're going to have a different arrow impact just because the humidity is so much less, the air is so much lighter, you know, you're going to, so, you know, you need to, not you necessarily, but people need to consider that. I, you know, I live at 5,000 feet and when I go to eight or nine or 10,000 feet, I have to take a couple shots with my bow and, and gang adjust, um, to make up for that elevation difference. You, you know, John, and that, that's, that's a good point, you know, for me too, is when, when I get out of the truck, you know, I shoot, like I shoot about 40 yards is about kind of where I set up the, throw the yeah. Reinhardt out yeah, and shoot. Perfect. And, and I don't know it for me, what I, I, I think I was, I don't know if this makes sense or not, but it, it seemed like I was shooting a little high. Would that be right? Exactly. Okay. Yep. Cause someone had told me that. So I always just kind of had it like before I went out, I had it. So I was shooting a little bit low and then I went out and it seemed to, to be pretty good there. And then all I had to do was just kind of adjust my dial a little bit. And, you know, I was only shooting at, you know, 40 yards and I'm not sure if that would, you know, amplify it at longer distances or not, but that's a, that's a really good point. (laughs) Yeah, no, it does. And, you know, so like for me, I went from, from here, 5,000 feet in Montana, I went to Northern British Columbia, but it's, it was very cold and very, humid and, and kind of heavy air. And when I, you know, got to camp and I was shooting at 40 yards, that's kind of the 40 or 50 is what I picked and I'm hitting low. Well, I kind of expected that. So then I had to just gang adjust, you know, you don't have to adjust the individual pins. You just kind of gang adjust the pin gap will stay the same, but, yep. but, um, but yeah, you, and, and Randy Ulmer has some great stuff on, on this. Um, and he's the one that kind of clued me in years ago, you know, about that. So I'd be living in Alaska at literally at sea level. And I would go north to the Brooks range. I'd come down here to hunt. And, you know, even though the bows, you know, sighted in, so to speak, you still had to adjust, uh, elevation for, for the different altitudes that you were at. You know, that's, that's, that's a really good point. And I'm glad you brought that up for everyone because, um, it's it's easy for you know say you get out there and you're sighted in ahead of time and i'd say most people probably throw and this is assuming but throw out a target at 20 yards make sure nothing got rattled in the drive or on the flight and then they're good you know and they go out and that could you know like you said be a little bit worse at longer distances yeah 20 yards you know i mean the reality is it hides a lot of form flaws i would say you know if you know, 40 or 50 yards, I don't think you have to try to air it out to 80 or something like that, but <laughs> 40 or 50 yards will definitely show you, you know, something where you're still accurate enough that you can de- determine that it's not you, that it, you know, truly is the equipment needs to be adjusted a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, John, now that, that we've talked about this and everything else, what, what do I need to do to kill an elk? <laughs> <laughs> I, I need the secret one ant, you know, one line answer for it to happen. That's you know, it's just that's all there is to it. 
So I, I can guarantee you that if you don't keep trying, you will not fail. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's a that's some good advice there. I'll, I'll definitely. You know, I mean, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of cliches, but like the guy from Kansas, you know, I mean, you got to hunt where they are too. Yeah. Um, I've definitely done a lot of hunting where they where they aren't. <laughs> that that's that's for sure. I've I've definitely hunted where you know. But the other thing is, and I I don't. I don't from from our discussions, I don't think you're this person, but I've got coworkers and 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 just other people that you know I've been around that have never killed an elk or a mule deer. You know, insert animal here uh, of any. You know, they just haven't killed that species. But you know, well, the first elk I'm going to kill is going to be a 360 bull, and it's like, man, you, you might be right, waiting your entire life to do that. And you know, if that's what they want to do, that's fine, but you know, the reality is most of us don't go kill 360 bulls every year. And some people never even see one, let alone, you know, ever kill one in their lifetime. So I would say, you know, manage your expectations. And like you said, you know, you'd have killed that, that raghorn if you'd have known that he was within, you know, the legal limits. And, you know, I've taken my own advice. I've done that. I didn't, you know, start shooting mule deer that were 180s. You know, cause you mean, you gotta get, you gotta get some experience under your belt. Yeah. 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 That's, a, that's the thing I, um, what you say about mule deer, that mule deer, I have an obsession with wanting to hunt them, but I told myself I got to kill an elk before I, before I move on to, you know, try a different yeah. species. Yeah. No, there, there you go. And, uh, I, 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 this year I'm debating on changing up states a little bit just to do something a little bit different. Um, thinking either Montana or Idaho, kind of looking at different options there. Nothing's nothing's set in stone, but I'm actually getting to the point where I may end up drawing some decent tags from been putting in for points yeah. and everything else. But but either way, you know, I'm I'm gonna be going out west chasing elk. I I have to. It's just it's one of them things. Like you know, right when I'm done, I'm like, ah, oh, you know, maybe next year I'll do something different, and then give me two weeks or even by the time I get home and I'm like, all right, I'm ready to go next year again. <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah, I'm, get I'm after pretty it. much obsessed with it. You know, luckily out here we get opportunities to hunt a lot of different species just on, you know, our general tags every year. And I don't know, uh, you know, I'll take, we have a very long elk season for archery, but you know, I'll take all six weeks if it, if that's what it comes to, to hunt elk and put everything else aside um, cause that's kind of like my number one, you know, it's my priority and yeah, no, it's, it gets, it, it gets in your blood for sure. But, you know, if you can get in an area where they're talking and I don't know where you've been hunting, if they've been talking a whole lot, a lot of times on public land with pressure, you know, they kind of, they kind of pipe down, but you know, if you can, if you can find some elk that are talking, man, you just have such a much higher chance of success of getting in there and, and, and killing one, you know? Yeah, that's that was been. Um, I think this past year was the least amount of bugles, and I was there double the time. But it just, I don't, I don't know. It was it was extremely tough. But the the ones once you do hear them and stuff, like you said, you at least can create an opportunity. Whether you screw that up or not, it's on you. But you, but still, it's a, I, I, I definitely am going to be looking again for a little bit different of an area, and I think. I think like even, I mean, all general units I'm sure are hunted, you know, heavily and everything, but something with Colorado recently that it just seems like everywhere you go, there's just people, 
and I think it's yeah. a very popular, you know, state, and it's the closest one to the east and everything else. And again, these are just assumptions, but I just want to try something a little bit different. We'll see. Yeah. Well, we we can we can talk when we get off the phone about yeah maybe some areas, but you know, I'm not a <laughs> yeah. Don't don't hunter. be saying anything now. <laughs> no, no. But I, you know, I'm not a turkey hunter, but you know, I have hunted turkey. You know, to some. To, to some mediocre success, but, you know, but imagine trying to hunt a turkey in the spring that never gobbled, right. That never made any noise that, that you, that you couldn't call to and, and bring in, like it'd be a really, really tough go. Right. And, and, and elk is kind of the same way for as big an animal as they are. And for as many as they may have in a herd, man, if they want to stay quiet, it is rough sledding to try to to, to try to kill one, you know, not yeah. that you can't, but it just makes it really tough. And those public land areas where you have other people and it's great, we have public lands, but you know, the, the, the animals, whatever animal it is, they, they're just going to act a little bit different. And, uh, you know, you definitely got to try to stack more odds in your favor than in theirs. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, I guess on that note, John, I don't, I don't think there's any other, you know, cheat, you know, things you're going to give me a one liner that's going to help me kill an elk. So I guess we'll, we'll move on to, I'm still trying to figure out my own one liner. I'm not, no. <laughs> everybody wants the easy way out and I'm no different. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I am too. I just don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's what someone, someone told me at work that's they're they're hunters, but they're not, you know, as into it as I am. They're like, you know, Bo, you've, you've been going on some hunts that are, all of them are pretty low success rates and you haven't really come home with anything. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how to answer wow, that's that. Harsh. Yeah, I know. But yeah, they're honest. And I was like, yeah, I use all my vacation to put myself in uh miserable situation sometimes, but it's, it's what I like to do. So I wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't want ways to spend your time. Yeah, that's for sure. So John, let's get into gear a little bit here. So Let's talk new sick of gear, big game 2019. What what do you have for me here? I mean, this is the first time I'm hearing about it too, so I'm I'm pretty excited. Yeah, so I gotta collect my thoughts because like we were talking before we <laughs> we uh we hit record, you know, I'm actually heading to Asia in a few weeks. Well, no, a week, uh, to go look at all our fall 2020 prototypes. So we're, we're well, we're almost done with, with fall 2020 development. So 2019 is almost like for me in my job, it's almost like old news and the world doesn't even know about it yet. So it's kind of funny. I, sometimes I slip up if people listen real close, sometimes I slip up and say things I shouldn't about certain products, but, um, or if if you say, or if you say anything that's wrong, I'll just let me know and I'll cut it out for you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'll bet you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll cut it out all right. <laughs> so so let me so to talk about twenty nineteen, let me jump back to twenty eighteen. So as you know, and you sent me a, a great uh email with some feedback, but kind of reset our pack line uh for big game and you know, got got some new designers and developers in and had some ideas and so we were able to make what is called the mountain hauler 6200 which is the the newest pack in in sicka's big game line so that came out this year 2018 um and that's a big load hauling pack you know multi-day 
probably, you know, certainly you could go a week with provisions on your back and, and carry elk out. Um, with those learnings in 2018, you know, I knew that probably wouldn't be the, the big volume, uh, the big volume driver of packs. Cause you know, not as many people hunt that way, but took those learnings, um, redesigned the complete bag. So the bag that the design features, the, the zippers and everything is, is, is different. The frame's a little bit different, but the suspension is, is still as kind of comfortable and plush as a 6200. And, um, so anyways, we came out with the mountain hauler 4,000. So that'll be new for 2019. Um, pretty cool. I think that's the pack that, you know, if I'm not hunting just close to the road or a trailhead, that's the pack that, that I've been wearing this last year, uh, carried, you know, fortunate enough to help obviously they weren't all mine, but fortunate enough to carry, I think five bulls out or parts of bulls with the mountain hauler 4,000 this year. It's just a great pack. I can, I can use it for a day pack. I can do an overnighter or two. Like I could probably do a weekend with it, but if I did kill something, you know, it's large enough to put a hind quarter of an elk in so that you're not having to, you know, go all the way back to the trailhead to get a a frame pack to come back and, and get meat out. So I'm pretty excited about that. So, um, so wait, that's, John, that's hold a on a second. You said that you're lucky enough to carry out five elk for buddies and everything. Do you really consider yourself lucky there? <laughs> that oh, sounds man, like a it. painful <laughs> experience. I love it. I love it. I have a, I have a, I have a weak mind and a strong back. So, um, <laughs> and a short, and a short term memory. <laughs> that's so funny. no, but, it, it, but that's what I do. I mean, I'm, I've got a you know, I've got to, I've got to test this gear and see other people use it. And, and, um, you know, so we were able to, you know, somebody gets a bull down and, and I can get over there, you know, and I, I, I try to go there and, 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 you know, and help them. Um, that's the only way to, it's the only way to know if this stuff works. I mean, believe me, I have other people doing it too, but as much as I can do, I I love to do that. So, you know, pretty stoked about that. And I, I might have some of the numbers wrong, but just let's just say that the pack so there's a way to expand the volume of the pack um if you did get a bull down and and needed to to get a little more volume similar to the 6200 but i believe the backpack rides at right about 2800 cubic inches in in its uh in its kind of uh regular volume and that counts them outside pockets and top lid I, i think so somewhere around let's just say 3000 we'll round it up to three but anyways and then when you when you do kill something and you need to expand it you know or you want to open up all the side compression straps and everything it'll actually expand to a little over 4000 cubic inches so it's actually a great i think it's a great size for you know certainly the western guys or even somebody like yourself although it's not designed to to carry a tree stand but you know if you're going you know, way into the mountains in PA or whatever the case may be, but you know, it's, it's, it's light enough and small enough that I can use it as a day pack, but I can certainly carry a, you know, it's rated to 150 pounds if I need to carry, you know, a bunch of meat out. So that, that's, that's one of the new packs. And then John, uh, real quick about the tree stand thing. I actually just recently was messing around with that and I I was hauling tree stands with the mountain hauler without much issue. Were you? Yeah. So I uh, 
Don't tell, don't tell Chris that. Yeah, I can't. I know. I don't want to. Yeah, I, <laughs> no, I, Chris, I hope Chris doesn't listen to this podcast. I know. We have to, I'll have to make sure uh, I block him from the email <laughs> list from seeing it when it goes out. But uh, no, I, I, I did haul some stands with it, just using the outside two straps. And um, it, it worked pretty efficiently. Let's put it that way. But anyways, let's, awesome. let's, let's, let's keep going on the big game stuff. Enough whitetail. <laughs> Yeah, no. So, uh, and so the next pack uh, is more. Well, it is. It's more of a day pack, and it's called the Mountain Twenty Seven Hundred. So, it's twenty seven hundred cubic inches total. Uh, much, much uh, less of a frame, and really nice suspension, but certainly not, you know, certainly not designed to carry one hundred fifty pounds. It's you know, I say it can carry 45 pounds very comfortably, but it's, it's a great pack to go out for the day, to go out scouting, you know, to, to certainly you could go elk hunt or mule deer hunt. You could go shed hunt with it. It's got some really nice features to carry uh, spotting scopes, tripods, just have great access to, you know, just jackets and food and water uh, during the day. And then we also have a woman's version of the Mountain 2700 as well. So just to, you know, making that commitment to the women's line, I realized we really didn't have any packs to go with our clothing for them. So, um, similar bag, well, the bag is, is identical, but the suspension is really where the difference is in the women's pack. And there's a lot of different, as you can imagine, uh, you know, ergonomic shape and things to the waist belt and the takeoff angles and, and just the shoulder straps and how that fits the woman's form. So, you know, pretty excited about the 2700 was able to, you know, use that quite a bit, like during antelope season and things like that. But again, no expectation to carry me. And so those two packs, uh, and the mountain hauler 6200 are going to be the new, the new packs in the line. Uh, in addition to that apex pack, which is that really, really low volume, super stealthy, quiet pack, you know, that we, that we have out this year as well. So, um, some of the older packs, the flash 20, the Bibby thirties, you know, those are going to kind of phase out and we're going to bring in these new packs for 2019. So that's, that's the first part of the big game. Uh, second part is got into something that's an extension that, that we've not, uh, done before. And, we have what I'm calling the flash shelters uh, for 2019. So there's a flash shelter eight by 10, which stands for eight foot by 10 foot and a flash shelter 10 by 12, 10 by 12. And it is a, a 40 D uh, silicone impregnated nylon. Um, and it's got our subalpine and open country prints on it. So the first and only optifade printed tarps in the world um, and it, what's cool is the print goes all the way through. So it's printed on both sides and got a lot of requests from guys who are, you know, say in Colorado looking for mule deer and they're up on a hillside, they're glassing. Obviously they don't want a deer to look up at them and see a yellow tarp and they don't want backpackers seeing them and that they're in the area. Um, guides are covering up their tents. So other guides don't fly over and see where guys are camped, but um, it's a great tent. It's or shelter. It's waterproof. It's windproof blocks sun. So it's, it's rated to UPF 25, um, wind, obviously snow. So it's a great 
shelter from the elements and it's got a really unique shape. So it's not just a rectangle. Um, and there's some real, I'm calling it the most durable, lightweight tarp made, um, in the sense that all the guy points are, are really well constructed and the shape allows you to pitch it in multiple, multiple different, uh, configurations, everything from, you know, an A-frame that you could throw a sleeping bag under and, and absolutely, you know, kind of get under and, and live as a shelter to just a windbreak. Um, it's got two pole, uh, reinforced pole pockets on the center line um, inside the tarp. So you can, you can pitch it with poles. You can all kinds of configurations. And uh, I'm really excited about those. Been able to use those for, I guess this would have been the second season now. Um, so, so that's something new that we've never gotten into. So the flash shelters are new. So that kind of takes care of the equipment. Wow, that and then that caught cool. me off guard a little bit. <laughs> I didn't. I honestly wasn't expecting that at all. That's cool. Yeah, Aaron, Aaron Snyder might be a little mad at me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had to do it. I, I, I had to do it. And uh, <laughs> you know, and he they make some awesome. They actually make some awesome tarps and tents and, and things like that. But yeah, but if somebody's looking for an Optifade printed tarp, we're going to have it for them for this next year. And um, oh, that's cool. It's pretty awesome. I mean. You know, guys are, like I said, glass and mule deer, and we've got them pitched on hilltops, you know, in Kodiak for brown bear hunts. And I mean, you name it. Um, we've laid, you know, we've laid the tarp down on the ground and, and put deboned meat on them and, uh, you know, the whole deal. So, you, you know, John, I, uh, when I, I was, I did the podcast with Aaron earlier in the year and he was talking about, uh, I was asking him about the differences, you know, between doing like, uh, you know, a three season, one person shelter versus doing a tarp and everything. And he had recommended that I use the tarp and, and really wasn't saying, you know, Kafaru or anybody else, but just talking about the, the differences. And I ended up, uh, ended up trying out this new lightweight tent that was a one person tent and everything else set up with trekking poles. And man, did I hate that. I, I did not feel confident in that whatsoever. I, I didn't even take it to Colorado with me because I tried it in Pennsylvania and the wind was about blowing on me, condensation all over me, everything else. And and I uh, I just wasn't a big fan of it. Actually, I, sh- I probably shouldn't say anything because I'm trying to sell it, but... <laughs> but well anyways i'm, I'm i think ex- everything has its place yeah everything has its place. <laughs> you know a tarp certainly is you know if you're going to use a tarp as your only shelter and, and kafara makes some awesome like true like tents right tps and stuff like that but yeah you know if you're going to go out there as a, with a tarp as your only shelter i think you need to have definitely some experience pitching it in multiple configurations in the wind um, but it's a great lightweight piece. I, you know, again, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but I think the eight by 10 is right at one pound. And I think that 10 by 12 is like one and a quarter pound. So, you know, probably not the lightest tarps out there, but certainly like really durable. They are very lightweight. And then again, you get that, that, uh, you know, subalpine or open country print that's on both sides. And it's just, it's just an exceptional I just think it's an exceptional addition to to what we're we're trying to do here at Sitka. So, you know, pretty pretty excited about those. And there's there's some tricks, and Aaron probably knows them a lot better than me. But there's some tricks to pitching some of those things, uh, you know, quickly in in different uh, different scenarios. So, 
so that's the gear. Um, as far as clothing, I have some updates to some rain gear. I've updated the Stormfront rain gear. I've updated the Cloudburst rain gear. So uh, we used to have something called the Dew Point. And for, for lots of boring logistical reasons, I wasn't able to continue to, to make the Dew Point. So that was our uh, lightest uh, rain gear in the big game line. But we kind of re, redesigned the Cloudburst rain gear and took some build out, but upgraded the laminate, really high quality. Um, and the Cloudburst is now the lightest rain gear in the big game line. So certainly anybody who's, you know, backpacking, going to Colorado for elk, et cetera, um, that would be the rain gear I'd recommend. But it's only, I believe, three ounces heavier than where the dew point was. So definitely a little more durability, but not at too much of a weight uh, penalty. So, you know, updated the rain gear, always trying to make it better. And then, um, but the two pieces of, of, uh, clothing for men, one's called the Kelvin active hoodie. So the Kelvin active hoodie utilizes a brand new insulation that to my knowledge has never been used in hunting. Uh, it's called polar tech alpha direct. And so when you look at it, it, it's a four way stretch nylon face. So it's durable. But the thing's stupid lightweight, and I can't remember off the top of my head how lightweight, but it's stupid lightweight, and it's got a you know half zip on the front. It's got a hood and a kangaroo pocket for your hands. Um, but the insulation inside is also the lining, and so when you look at this piece, it looks kind of furry on the inside. Well, that's actually the insulation, and it's the lining. So what that allows is you to leave one layer of material at home, right? So you don't have to put a lining in it. So that makes it lighter. It makes it breathe better. And then, you know, it moves moisture. If it were to get wet, it would, it's ridiculously fast to dry. Um, and it's the perfect layering piece for the apex hoodie. And the reason I say that is because if you remember the apex hoodie has elbow pads, correct? Yep. So when you would put any other, uh, insulation over top of the apex hoodie. So a lot of times I'd put the Kelvin active jacket, I'd end up covering up those elbow pads. Inevitably I'd get in a scenario where I'd go on a stalk. And then even though I have the elbow pads, I'm kind of grinding the, the elbows off my Kelvin active jacket. So, um, with that in mind and in the spirit of the archery hunter, uh, we cut the sleeves off at the elbow on the Kelvin active hoodie. And that does a couple things. One, you always have access to those elbow pads, um, on the apex hoodie when you're wearing it to the apex or the Kelvin active hoodies, crazy lightweight. Um, and it's quiet. And so it's just this perfect complement um, to the apex hoodie. But I also wore it in BC as one of my layers when I was up there in October for, for two weeks. Um, because as I begin to layer more and more, jackets on top of each other you know as you build a system to you know protect yourself from whatever weather like you begin to add a lot of bulk to your forearms you just do and i'm up there trying to archery hunt you know moose and i don't want really big bulky forearms where i'm going to start getting string slapped so by actually not having one layer without you know material and insulation on your forearms is is actually a good thing and it was actually an exceptionally great piece to layer within, uh, uh, kind of a, a warmer cold weather system. 
So that is the, that is the apparel piece. And then I've got one more item, which is called the Stormfront glove. And the Stormfront glove is a glove we've had in our line for a very long time. And it was, and I don't know if you've ever used it, but it's a long gauntlet glove. Have you ever used that? No. That shell? Nope. I've never used it. Yeah. Okay. So it's a great glove, but you know, it's a little dated and just how it looks. And I mean, it performs exceptionally well. It's got a removable kind of thick fleece liner. Um, but the glove I always wanted and the glove, you know, when I was working for the government, trying to not design stuff, but tell other people how, you know, what we'd like to have designed. I always wanted a short gauntlet Gore-Tex shell glove that had a removable liner in. I could never figure out why nobody could do it. And the reality was, um, it's really complicated to do. And so just to give you a little education real quick, the way a a normal Gore-Tex glove is built is you take a shell and it could be, you know, a nylon with a DWR on it. And you basically make the shell of the glove and you just, you know, you sew it together, you put a palm on it, but that's not waterproof. And then you take the Gore-Tex liner. So the Gore-Tex liner that would go in a glove if you were to blow in it like a balloon it would actually look like mickey mouse's hand you know it's like big and fat fingered and puffy you know almost looks like a catcher's mitt with with fingers on it um that that's the gore-tex liner that actually goes in a traditional gore-tex glove so you stick that in the glove and because it's bigger than the actual glove shell you get lots of creases and and bulk and and things like that and then you have to put a liner inside of that to protect the Gore-Tex, um, the Gore-Tex inside the glove. So you actually have three layers of material. So it's heavier. It doesn't breathe as well, et cetera. Um, from my knowledge, we're the only the third, I think we're the third company, at least the research I've done, the third company in the world that's been able to make a taped Gore-Tex shell glove. And the reason is because it's really complicated to do. I believe Arc'teryx was the first people to do it. Uh, the North face, I believe did it. And I think we are the third now that have been able to do that. So what you get Bo, is you get a crazy lightweight, awesome, dexterous, short gauntlet Gore-Tex glove. It is what it is like the Gore-Tex, the shell, the liner, it's all one. And it is great. It breathes well. It's got very limited seam taping. And then we've got a really nice fleece glove liner that goes inside there. Um, if so, you can use the shell by itself. You can use the shell with the liner, or you can run any of our other fleece or merino glove liners into that shell. So it really, we've built a great glove system, um, that I think people are really gonna, really gonna be excited about. And the reason I made the gauntlet short and didn't keep the long elbow length gauntlet is because, you know, we'll take BC again as a great example. I pretty much wore them every day when I was up there, especially when we were riding uh, horses. But, you know, some days when it wasn't raining and it was just sunny but cold, I would pull the, those gloves on and the gauntlet would go over top of whatever jacket I was wearing because um, there was no precipitation. But on the days that it was raining or snowing real hard, I would pull the jacket of my uh, the sleeve of my rain jacket down over top of that short gauntlet. So now when I'm riding as the water's running down my arms, it's not running right down into my gloves, making my hands wet. So it gives you that versatility, um, as the weather changes. Okay. I gotcha. Like, so this is, I, I guess from 
takeaway with it is the way that this glove is without having the the liner in there you can actually like you said wear a liner glove say a merino or um the traverse or anything like that inside it and and be able to kind of be a little bit more versatile from that standpoint correct and then the actual shell is waterproof yeah so it's not the actual not just really start to dissect gloves right if you really start to dissect Cortex gloves, they they always are a three layer. They have three different layers that make it waterproof, and we were able to. It's really kind of an origami exercise when when our designer kind of tried to figure this out. Um, that you basically try to make this, and you make it with as least amount of seams as possible, because every time you seam tape it, it cuts a little bit down on breathability and and kind of takes away some of the tactile feel of the glove. So it's a really you know, when you look at it, you're like, oh, that's a really nice glove. But when you really understand what it is, like it's, it's, it's damn near a work of art, what, what the designer was able to do. And like I said, as far as I know, we're only the third company that's been able to do it. Um, so I'm really excited because for the first time, like I finally got like the cold weather glove I've always wanted. Um, which is pretty, which is pretty cool. Um, and I know you've let me talk a lot, but the last thing I will say is we've got a whole new system uh, for women for big game that they're going to be stoked on. Um, we've got lightweight Merino for them. We've got a hooded Merino top. That's exceptional. Um, we've got a scent pants and a new mountain jacket for the ladies and the mountain jacket has something I've always wanted on the men's mountain jacket, which is a hood. So the women have a, a hooded uh, windstopper mountain jacket, which is awesome uh, jet stream vest. So a windstopper vest, which is just, it's killer. And we made it in black as well as camo, uh, just an exceptional piece. Um, like I said, we have the pack for them and then something that is going to be difficult for me to explain. Uh, but it's called the women's active tank. And, and basically what it is, is think of, uh, like, a an, uh, a technical tank top, um, that women can wear like as a sports bra, uh, if they want, but it's, you know, full length, but it's a, it's a tank top. Huh. And so basically I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that they had, um, I wanted to make sure that they had a complete layering system from skin to shell. And, and the women we were working with said, Hey, you know, we'd really like to have something like this. And so, did, did, um, did you have to do I, the I product testing? To <laughs> no, 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 you will not find a picture of me wearing it, but, uh, but, um, the, the, the one, the one woman who, um, who came over from Patagonia a couple of years ago, she, she headed that project and, and, uh, it, you know, it's a great piece and it, you know, to me, I think it just shows our commitment, um, to the women hunters, uh, who wear Sitka that, you know, we're, we're, we're in it for the long haul. And, and we heard that this was something that they wanted and it certainly wasn't something I had ever worked on before. So, you know, we brought in people who knew it who knew what they were doing. And anyway, so, so they have a, the women in big game have a, a lighter weight, call it warm weather system now. And then they have the original system we built that, that kind of trended more towards uh, mid to late season and, uh, and colder temperatures. So just a really great lineup, I think overall. And, you know, what is it? It's almost December 1st as we talk. And I think sometime first week of January, you know, we'll be, we'll be showing the world all this yeah. stuff at the, at the shows. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited. I'll release this right 
basically first day ta show is probably my plan so i can't i can't release it next week or then then you'll be giving me another call so i better wait until then <laughs> <laughs> yeah i appreciate you wait just a couple more weeks but yeah okay <laughs> yeah so actually john i did get to see the kelvin active hoodie um when, when we were up in alberta there so oh, i got to play with a up little in bit alberta. yeah so eric had it and i was like hey what's that and he's like oh geez <laughs> but uh pulled it out and i was playing with it and that without having a liner in there it feels weird at first but it's so lightweight and packable like and and the kelvin active jacket is my absolute favorite piece in the the big game line I'm, i always have it with me and yep. that was that was really cool to see that and to add the hood to it, and like you said, the the no sleeves or the the no forearm, I guess sleeves. It's I I think that's going to be something that may people may look at it first and not really understand it, but if they get the education behind it and give it a shot, I feel like it would be an an awesome layering piece and and an outer shell for a lot of elk hunting. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. I think if I was able to go around and and talk to every you know, sit to consumer and, and talk to them about that piece. Um, every one of them would buy one. Right. Yeah. So it's going to take a little education on their part because people are going to go, why is it furry on the inside? Now I mean furry, but you know, you've seen it, you know, why is it furry on the inside? Why are, why are the sleeves cut off at the elbows? And it's like, because we build specialized gear and like, that's exactly what, you know, what in certain situations, that's exactly what I want. You know, and I, because we're, we're talking about, we were talking about Aaron earlier, you know, I got Aaron, uh, one of those, I think in September, you know, and I, I asked him just, please don't, you know, publicly show it, but he's like, dude, this thing is, this thing's incredible, you know, and especially for archery hunters, like it's gonna, it's gonna make sense to archery hunters, I think right away. But like I said, even up in British Columbia, you know, and I'm not, I won't go through the whole system I was wearing, but but, you know, I had that on every day as part of my layering system, and it was unbelievable, you know? I mean, the warmth that it provides for as light as it is, and then the hood with the nylon, like, I wasn't even wearing a beanie half the time up in British Columbia, and it was, it was like getting to be winter up there. Um, just because I could pull that hood up, it would block the wind, and then if I got hot, I would just pull the hood back and vent, and um, just an exceptional piece, a really technical piece. Um, some people in the, the mountain sports community have definitely made some stuff out of it, but you know, nobody in the hunting space has, uh, has even, you know, has even gone there yet. That's um, awesome. So I'm excited to be able to bring that, bring that to market first. And yeah, the Kelvin, the Kelvin jacket is absolutely, or the Kelvin, the Kelvin active jacket is absolutely probably my favorite, but man, this one is, this one's going to give it a run for its money bow. I'm telling you for me. Okay. That's yeah. I, I, like I said, I saw that hood at first and I was like, yes, that's, that's perfect. And then I saw the sleeves cut off and at first, you know, I kind of sat there and thought about it. And I, I just think like even, even layering that directly over say the core lightweight, anything like that, when you're elk hunting, I mean, I, I just, in my head, I'm picturing all the different scenarios that you could use it for. And, and I see that being, I see it being in my system. That's for sure. Yeah. And it's, it's quiet, you know, so I, I would, I would have no problem. Well, I've, you know, I've stalked in it and I would have no problem, you know, early morning you're going out, sun's just coming up and 
you got say an apex hoodie on, but you need a little more insulation. So I've got that on and I've got no problem stocking in that. And then, you know, if it gets warm, then you just strip that off and you keep the apex hoodie on. And, and then as the sun goes back down, you just put that back over. And I mean, it just, it weighs nothing. I wish I could remember what it weighs, but it doesn't weigh very much at all. Um, packs down really nice and yeah. And and like you said, that's going to definitely be an educational thing for people to, to understand it. Cause I know like when, when I was, you know, working down the shop and trying to sell, um, or I guess talk to people about the Kelvin active jacket, the biggest thing everyone would say to me is it doesn't feel durable because it's so quiet and lightweight and soft on the outside. And I'm like, guys, I mean, I, I mean, I've used it for situations. It's probably not even meant for with, um, when I'm Turkey hunting in Pennsylvania, I was wearing it going through briar patches and everything else. I'm like, this is a, an extremely tough material. I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought that from first feeling it. And again, it's a, it's an educational thing to, to understand it. And when I saw the new Kelvin active hoodie, I was like, this feels even, you know, softer and lighter and everything else. It, it doesn't feel like it would be durable, but it is. And that's, what's crazy about it. Yeah, no, it is. You know, we work real hard to, (laughs) as you know, you know, to, to try to find these different textiles that, that kind of provide, these unique things we're looking for. It's not easy sometimes. Um, but those two pieces, especially like, I'm so excited how, how both of them came out. Um, those Kelvin active pieces are just, just exceptional, but it it does. And I, you know, this is one of the reasons I appreciate you, you know, having me on your podcast is because it does, it does require some education because some of this stuff is, is a little foreign to, to a lot of people, not just hunters, but you know, but, but to a lot of people that looking at technical apparel, because we're always trying to push, um, what's possible and get better performance. And, you know, that comes at a, at a bit of a cost and not a financial one, but, but an educational one that we have to continue to, you know, bring our, bring our consumer along in our community, um, to really get, to really understand the value and to help them get the most bang for their buck out of, out of the product, you know, if I buy a Gunworks rifle and only shoot it at 250 or 300 yards, like I'm actually not really exercising the system I've got. And I feel it's the same with the Sitka system. It's like, yeah, it's going to work no matter, no matter how much you do or don't know. But the more you know, the more educated you are on the system, you are going to be unbelievably amazed at, at what it can do for you. You know, and you and I have obviously had lots of conversations about this. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's true. I think you and I could geek out about it for quite a while talking. <laughs> but oh yeah, <laughs> I, I I I just I've been wearing like a whole bunch of different stuff of different systems and the way how to just kind of layering it just to try out different things and see what works and what doesn't. It's it's fun to play around with, but I guess that's I don't think everyone has that same mindset, but I think you and I think similar similarly on that. So <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, I can't wait till we're having this conversation on this podcast next year, because quite frankly, the stuff for 2020 is going to blow your hair back. You can't be talking about that, John. <laughs> no, I'm just telling you. <laughs> I always, I always like to leave a tease, but yeah. I'm telling you, man, it's going to blow your hair back. <laughs> all right. Well, all I ask, all I ask from you is that 
that uh, hopefully your your second um, Instagram post is going to be a picture with that new women's tank on to, to show everyone <laughs> how to exercise that system. <laughs> now that you got the cat photo know, up. I'm not sure I can outdo my first post, but that might do it. That, that actually might do it. <laughs> but, yeah, so, John, is, uh, is there anything else that you want to cover from that standpoint or anything else you want to leave the listeners with at the end here? Um, well, as you know, you got to see some of the new whitetail stuff yeah. for this next year. Pretty awesome. So we'll just say that I'm sure, I'm sure you guys will be talking about that, but no, I, I, I you know, I, like I told you, man, I, I love, I love the, I love the forum you got here. I love the whole concept. Um, I appreciate you letting me come on and run my mouth for a while, but, uh, it's always good catching up with you, you know, and yeah, hopefully I get to see you at the shows here in the next few months. Yeah, hopefully, uh, yeah, we were going to record this at ATA, and you brought up a good point of how busy it is, and it's probably not a a good place to be able to focus and get this done. So I'm glad we did it ahead of time, and maybe we can just have a couple beers or something. Yeah, I'd, I'd much rather have beers. I, 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 most of the time at those shows, like from morning till an hour after they close, I mean, I don't even have time to get a drink of water. Yeah. Uh, let alone do a podcast. So yeah, I'd rather just go grab a beer with you and, and, uh, see what you think about some of the stuff that, that I've talked about that you haven't seen yet. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. So, all right, John, well, uh, I guess we'll leave it at that and appreciate you coming on once again. And I'm sure this won't be the last time. Yeah, no, thanks a lot, Bo. I look forward to seeing you here in a couple weeks. All right. We'll see you later, John. Okay, man. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.